Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah here. And just a reminder that after the guests have gone, the conversation continues on our Twitter, Insta, and Facebook communities. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this week's topic. Did you think the guests were charitable? Did you have your mind changed? Find us at P of Charity on Twitter and at Principal of Charity on all other platforms to be part of the discussion. As always, we hope you are attempting to apply the Principal of Charity in your everyday lives. And to help you with that, listen out for Lloyd's Principal of Charity Challenge. Now, this week, unfortunately, Norman was competing with some neighborhood drilling, so... Some of the audio is a little subpar, but it didn't get in the way of a great conversation. Here it is. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman, and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. The Principle of Charity reminds us that every time we disagree well, we are making both democracy and the pursuit of truth stronger. The truth-like democracy is about the competition of ideas. Disagreement is important. None of us have a lock on truth. None of us know the truth. The more we disagree, the closer we get to the truth. And in this vein, the principle of charity personal challenge this week is, when you next approach or are in the midst of a disagreement, can you frame the disagreement not as an irritation, but as an opportunity to practice truth-seeking and build a more democratic way of thinking. Emil, what's the question and our topic for today? Thanks, Lloyd. Our topic today is, is complementary or alternative medicine helpful or not? So what do we do when we don't feel well? And mainstream Western medicine can't seem to help us. Maybe it's an irritable bowel or headaches that come too frequently, chronic fatigue or or just joint pain that, that, that won't go away. Maybe it's digestive problems or insomnia or allergies, or we're just anxious or depressed, but no pill seems to be able to help. And then we hear about a whole plethora of treatments that promise relief, whether it's a visit to a naturopath who prescribes herbal remedies and vitamins, a radical restructure of our diet, eating no meat and alkaline water, or only meat and celery juice, Ayurvedic treatments, Reiki, kinesiology. The practitioners all claim the treatments are effective, and there's plenty of anecdotal evidence to support them. But when we look at scientific journals, it seems the hard evidence is often scant and in some cases not existing. But yet we surely have to do something. We can't just live like this ongoing. Sure, the treatments uh, cost money and we might not have that money, but isn't health the most important thing? Isn't it worth the sacrifice? And what about in more serious cases? If we're given the the life-threatening diagnosis of cancer or a neurological condition like Parkinson's, but are told by doctors that there's no cure or they have limited treatment options. We are desperate to save our lives or just improve our lives in even just a small amount. In all these cases, how should we assess complementary medicine? There's so much at stake and we just want to get better. The complementary and alternative medicine industries, they're massive and they're growing. The market globally is worth nearly $100 billion and is expected to grow to over $400 billion by 2030. It's truly a global industry with Europe making up the biggest share, but the Middle East and Africa actually the fastest growing. And 70% of Australians use complementary or alternative medicine of some sort. But why are there alternative medicines and treatments in the first place? Surely if something is proven to be effective, proven to the level of mainstream medicine, then it would become mainstream and included in medical training and practice. 
do we conclude then that alternative medicine stays alternative because it's not proven to be effective relying on the placebo effect or the hope that it might be? Or does the limitation lie within mainstream medicine itself? Is it too focused on pills and surgery, blinded by its own lens to fully appreciate the helpful treatments that lie outside its mindset? Or maybe the standards of proof, the double-blind and longitudinal studies that turn speculation into science are just not practical or achievable when it comes to many alternative therapies. Are some treatments just not worth the while of pharmaceutical companies to trial as they won't make enough of a return for shareholders? And are they too expensive for governments to take on? Or is it deeper than this? Is mainstream Western medicine with its focus on treating symptoms rather than preventing illness in the first place, with its blinkers aimed at the patient's biology rather than their whole being, a fundamentally flawed model trying to catch us once we're already falling? Should we be focused a lot more in terms of resources on prevention as a society? And what of this shift to wellness, which uh, aims to help us live a life of flourishing rather than just an absence of illness. At what point does this shift uh, you know, move from helpful to hoax? In this episode, we're going to explore all of this, coming back to the central question that I and imagine so many of you keep coming back to. What is it reasonable to do if we feel sick, but our doctor doesn't seem to be able to help? Emil, to help us through the topic today, we have two guests, Dr. Penny Caldecott and Dr. Norman Swan. Let me tell you about Norman first. Norman is a multi-award-winning broadcaster, journalist, and commentator. He is the host and creator of the Health Report on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Radio National, which is the longest-running health program in the English-speaking world. Norman was one of the first medically qualified journalists in Australia. He was born in Scotland and graduated in medicine from the University of Aberdeen and later obtained his postgraduate qualifications in pediatrics. He has won numerous national and international awards for journalism, including Australia's top prize for science journalism, the Michael Daly Award. He has also been awarded the Medal of the Australian Academy of Science and given an honorary doctorate of medicine by the University of Sydney. He is the Australian correspondent for the Journal of the American Medical Association and the British Medical Journal. Finally, Norman is also a best-selling author and his latest book, So You Want to Live Longer, was released in January 2022. Emil, our other guest is Penny Caldecott. Penny is the president of the Australasian Integrative Medicine Association. She's also the founder and director of Invitation to Health, a holistic patient-centered medical service. And since graduating from medical school, More than two decades ago, Penny's passion for understanding the journey that contributes to a patient's disease has led her to practice what's called integrative medicine. In this practice, complementary therapists like naturopaths and nutritionists work together with GPs in an environment designed to apply the best of evidence-based conventional medicine and complementary therapies. Emil, let's bring on the guests. Norman and Penny, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Norman, I'm going to start with you. How would you describe mainstream Western medicine in terms of what scientific rigor is needed for something to be accepted as medically therapeutic? Well, you're talking to a cynic because mainstream medicine is not as evidence-based as you'd like to think. 20 or 30% of what we do in mainstream medicine or what they do now is uh, waste, stuff that either shouldn't be done, is too late, too early too expensive, uh, doesn't lead to good outcomes. There's a lot wrong with mainstream medicine. But at its core, there is evidence and randomized controlled trial evidence. And there's this artificial divide between complementary medicine and mainstream medicine because if there's evidence and good evidence, then it just becomes medicine. Um, And whether that be massage, whether that be maybe some supplements, and so on and so forth. Um, there's, this, there's, there's this artificial divide, but there's a holier-than-thou attitude in mainstream medicine which um, works against itself. And so how would you describe the actual scientific process itself? What Randomised control trials, what does is, what is medicine do in order for something to be accepted within the canon? At its core, there are multiple sources of evidence uh, which have various levels. So the top level of evidence yeah. is is based on the randomized control trial. Now, randomized control trials are often done badly. 
too small, uh, badly designed, not truly randomized. Uh, but when they are done quite well, they still can give a distorted view of the world. So the, the highest level of evidence is where you combine the available randomized controlled trials, bring all the data together, and work out what should be done. So for example, if they'd done that with aspirin after a heart attack, we'd have probably saved thousands and thousands of lives around the world. Because if they'd done that for 25 years, they would have known that aspirin after a heart attack saves lives. But they mm. relied on small randomized trials. So the next level down is randomized trials after what's called a systematic review. That's the top level, randomized trials. Then you get down to dodgier evidence, but it still can be quite good, which is where you follow groups of people through cohort studies and watch what happens to them. Um, you can have uh, um, case control studies where you have groups of people with a condition, groups of people without the condition or otherwise similar and find out what the risk mm. factors are and so on. And then in, in Scandinavia and to some extent in Australia, you have uh, registries where you follow groups of people with, say, osteoarthritis or diabetes, and you you monitor what care they're having and monitor their outcomes and feed that back to doctors where randomized control trials aren't uh, possible. I mean, just to continue there, what actually is a randomized control trial? So a randomized control trial is you have an intervention. It doesn't need to be a drug. In fact, there should be randomized control trials on pathology tests and um, surgical procedures and so on. So the idea is you've got an intervention uh, or you've got, you've got a, prob a person with a, with a diagnosable problem. So the first thing is, yeah. have you reliably diagnosed the problem? You've got an intervention. And then you have to be able to have a sham intervention. So in the case of knee surgery, it would be you have an anesthetic, you have a cut in your knee, but you don't know whether or not you've had somebody going into your knee or not. Or it's a sham drug. And you then have a, a large enough group of people to get your effect. So the person who's doing the study doesn't know what treatment the person's getting. The person who's mm. analyzing the study doesn't know what treatment the person got. That's double-blind, isn't it? It's, that's, it is, that's right. It's double-blind. Double blind. And you don't have adverse selection within it, and you don't have what are called confounders, where you've uh, you, where your your sample size is your sample is distorted. There's a whole series of things that go along with that. Yeah, quite quite complex. But one of the key things is a, a large enough sample, and too many trials are done with small two samples that are too small. A good example of that is fish oil. Well, and indeed acupuncture. So fish oil early trials, small trials showed benefits in uh, cardiac disease. Um, various other you know, mental mental health issues and so on. But as the studies got better and larger, the effect reduced to, in fact, there's almost no effect of fish oil when you actually do large samples. When you look at small studies of acupuncture, it looks really effective. And what, what's really interesting about acupuncture is that there's probably no significance to the meridians, but there is a significance about needling. Um, so when you actually do sham needling, you get a very, it's not a placebo effect. You actually get a significant effect on pain relief, for example. So there is something going on with acupuncture, but it's not the Chinese meridians. In a sense, you're, you're sort of arguing for a smaller bullseye in, in mainstream medicine that it can be too lax at times and that actually for something to qualify as genuinely therapeutic in mainstream medicine, the, 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 the test needs to be harder, not easier. Correct. Well, Penny, let's move to you now and just, and we're going to, you know, we've got a number of questions looking at some of the lines, uh, the borderlines and the problems of the various, you know, viewpoints. But just in general, how would you describe what lies outside of mainstream um, Western medicine? What are the sort of treatments that are there and, and, and why do you think they're needed? So for, first of all, I just want to say that all integrative, if we're talking about integrative medicine doctors, uh, integrative medicine doctors are first and foremost conventional doctors. And yeah. I would argue that they need to be very, very good conventional doctors uh, before they do anything else. Um, and then uh, integrative medicine is also not just about the individual practitioner. It's about how practitioner teams work together um, for, that, for the patient and actually work really collaboratively, which we do to some extent in conventional medicine, um, but we could be working more closely together and often patients feel 
quite alone out there trying to kind of navigate between practitioners. Mm. So um, integrative medicine is really about understanding the patient um, as a whole. And I'd say that we aim to do that in conventional medicine, but I'm not sure that we're taught how to do it in, in the most effective way. And by understanding the whole patient, we want to know pretty much like the whole matrix that that patient exists in. So you want to know about their past. You might even want to know what happened in utero. You might want to know something about their genetics, which we're learning more and more about. You want to know about what happened to them as a kid. You know, were they sick? Were they well? Did they have trauma? Were they loved? What kind of environment they grew up in? And Mm. then the trajectory of their health and also of their illnesses um, and everything that's happened to them along the way. So that by the time you finish taking a history from a patient, which probably is going to take um, up to an hour, then you've got a little bit of an idea about how it all fits together. Because what we're really good at in medicine is going, well, you've got this and you've had that and you might have this diagnosis and let's look at all of that. And I think that's all really important. But what we don't often do is put the whole story together. And putting the whole story together gives you a much better understanding of that individual patient. So we talk about person-centred, personalised care and patient co-design, but I don't think that these are the things we do particularly well in conventional medicine. We also have to understand that that people get to a a diagnosis diagnosis or a condition for many different reasons, and they're not the same in each person. And so what's really important is to kind of go back and look for each person, you know, how they got there and what are the particular contributing factors and how can we address those contributing factors. Um, And so integrative medicine is more about that. And then, of course, looking at what's best. So if medication's the best answer, let's definitely do that. If sending them to a psychologist is great, let's let's do that. But if, if, say, a university-trained naturopath's a good person uh, to send them to and work with, well, then we could also do that or use a health coach. So bringing in that team um, and, and bringing in any modality that has um, a good enough evidence base um, to be used for that patient. What lies outside of mainstream medicine? What are some of the practices and why, why are they needed? So what, where, where does mainstream medicine, in a sense, have, have limitations for patients? Okay, so I mean, I, I agree with Norman that once uh, something has evidence, it should actually be considered just medicine right um and uh but it actually takes a while and i'm sure norman would agree it takes a while for things to move into mainstream medicine so i don't ever talk about alternative medicine well not from a doctor's perspective because there's never an alternative to doing the medicine that we practice it's whether there are things that are complementary um and evidence base that you can bring in let's get into the detail what are they so i mean okay so there's all the allied health people for sure there's chinese medicine which is now um app registered so and and recognized and there are the uh, many other traditional medicines so there are you know there's um, indigenous medicines from all over the world including australia and they've actually started using aboriginal healers within um some places in South Australia and I think in other places in Australia, which which has been fantastic. Um, uh, we, we train naturopaths in Australia at university. So if we're training them at university and that's recognised, I think we should probably recognise that they, they have mm. some really important skills. And, in fact, it's the naturopaths who started us to think that you know, the gut is probably the centre of everything that where we should start. And now we're realising how how incredibly important the microbiome is for everything. Mm. And, and so we that's changed the way we practice medicine. That's really started to move into Western medicine. But they're also fantastic at nutrition. They're trained in health coaching and, uh, and also very well trained at individualising patient care. So realising that each patient needs a different kind of pathway. So it's not because you've got one disease that you're going to be treated in one way. So uh, naturopaths, there are also other nutritionists. There's all the allied health people as well who are already part of our conventional system. Kinesiology, isn't there? Some of the the, um, iridology. I can't talk about iridology. It's not an area that I know anything about and and hasn't been an area of my interest but and I think less people less naturopaths are using that now than they used to uh well vitamins well to be fair our whole body is basically a chemical factory and it's made up of 
of uh, minerals and vitamins and essential fatty acids and many things. So vitamins and minerals and and other supplements can be used uh, when appropriate and when needed for that patient. Norman, I'll just come to you for a moment. You know, when I look up some alternative or let's say complementary treatments, the, the, the associations online say that they work. And there seems to be, there's always lots of anecdotal evidence that treatments work. But when I look at some of the more scientific journals, they often say there's no hard evidence. Now, I'm just wondering, is it because the level of scientific rigor needed to prove a treatment works just isn't, or sometimes isn't achievable on a practical level? You can't do double blind controlled tests over decades to look at what supplements and diets work or not. And and if so, does that mean mainstream medicine will never be able to fully incorporate some treatments that are likely to work because because they can't be proven to certain stand, scientific standards? Or or is the, is the issue one of resources and incentives that no group has the resources or financial incentives to test uh, Reiki with the scientific rigor needed to prove whether it works or not? Or is it more simply that unproven alternative therapies just don't don't work? First, first thing is that when you actually look at so-called complementary therapies and what people actually use, and when orthodox doctors get panicked about complementary medicine and how many people are using it, it's actually the people are using Reiki and iridology. It's a tiny, it's a tiny, tiny proportion. You know, in the middle are people who are taking supplements, minerals. They're doing it themselves, or they're doing it on advice, or they're going to see a naturopath and they're taking herbal medicine, or, or whatever. Um, they might be having massage. Sometimes massage is considered complementary medicine. Almost nobody would think of massage as complementary medicine. And even some things that physios and chiropractors might do would be considered complementary. So it's a very broad church, but most people have stuff in the middle that's pretty sensible and pretty harmless, in fact, if you if you want to try it out. So it's not just complementary therapists who say this. Surgeons say it all the time, you know, when I do an e-arthroscopy, it cures people of their arthritis, and you can never do a randomized trial. Well, Rochelle Bookbinder in mm. Melbourne did a randomized trial of knee arthroscopy and showed it didn't work, um, which <laughs> is the, the methodology I described earlier. You get do a cut in the, you do an anesthetic, you do a cut in the knee, and you don't know whether you don't know whether you've had it. Um, and the person who's analyzing the study isn't the orthopedic surgeon. Shows that that doesn't work. So you can actually test almost all therapies. It's a myth that some things you'll just never be able to study. You, you can. You've just got to find it out. Now, resources are an issue. So you've mm. got to, randomized controlled trials are expensive, and therefore there is a bias towards pharmaceuticals and and so on. But even medical devices where there is money, the randomized trials aren't done. So we we aren't sure sometimes about some medical devices. So I, I, I think this whole thing about can you do the study, is a lot. there's a lot of mythology around that do you think we can, we can do studies it's just you know about the will the way the resources and at a point we'll have enough and more information uh we'll keep marching forward and more and more things will get either included in or rejected out of mainstream medicine you can now if there's no money for a randomized trial you can do a registry uh, and that's what they do in sweden sweden has lots of lots of registries so if you've got a people a group of people with um, a condition you can just simply not change the way the therapists or doctors are treating that patient, but you you register the patient on the registry. You register now. We, we do this in cancer, by the way, in New South Wales and Victoria. If you've got cancer, you're on the cancer registry, and it's registered what treatment you have, and therefore measuring what outcomes you what outcomes you get at the end of it. You can actually look at a large group of yeah. people over a period of time, look at the treatment they get, and find out who's doing better than others without necessarily randomising. There are Lots of different technologies for assessing the benefits. It's just mm. not true that you can't study things. Okay, that's great. Well, Pe- Penny, how do you how do you think about evidence? Evidence, like in the complementary medicine world, I do see the phrase evidence based treatments um, come up a lot. What evidence? What level of evidence is needed, and is it different to mainstream medical evidence and science? How do you think about evidence? Okay, so Norman's right. There's a lot of things that we do in medicine that may not have the gold standard evidence base as well. Mm. But in fact, evidence-based medicine as defined by Sackett is is has kind of three legs to it. So it's the science and it's, it's the research-based evidence. It's the practitioner experience and it's the patient desire. And actually all three of those things are really important for those legs to stand on to practice evidence-based medicine. It's really important to understand that evidence-based medicine is not just the research. 
Could you break that down, Penny? What? So you said it's the patient's desire. What does that mean? As an well, it's it's what the patient wants. Because if you say, "Hey, I've got this great treatment for you, and it's going to really help your irritable bowel syndrome or your osteoporosis mm. or something," and look, here's the evidence for it, and in my experience, it's been really effective, and the patient says, "Well, I don't want to do it." Well, then you can't practice that evidence-based medicine with that patient because sure. they may then refuse to do it. So those three legs are actually really a part of the definition of evidence-based medicine. Sometimes we think of evidence-based medicine as only the research. But as a clinician, um, you have to, we have to see this differently. So if I, if I could just interrupt up there, that's why registries are so important because registries yep. combine all three. Uh, rather than randomized trials, which are just purely scientific. Registries bring in the practitioner's preference, the patient's preference, and the evidence base, and then you can monitor them through. And the same for, I mean, I guess it's a bit like doing case studies. You, so you can do an individual case study on patients who, on a patient who's, you know, who's maybe done quite well from a number of different interventions, and then you can also publish a case series to kind of tell the story, which is a similar idea. Um, so just go back to remember that that most chronic disease, and that's what we're mostly dealing with, not right. acute, acute stuff, is multifactorial. Mm. That's why there's just no one pill for a chronic disease, right? And so mm. you're going to have multiple interventions, and, and somehow it's about it's about integrating those multiple interventions. So let's say you're dealing with someone with an autoimmune disorder who also has a really difficult digestive system, for example, because your immune system is modulated through your gut. You may have to deal with that. And they may also have trauma because many people with chronic disease actually mm. have some trauma in their background, either as a result of the disease or prior to it. And so you might need to actually do some brain retraining as well. And that's very hard to create a sort of evidence-based, you know, clear control for people with seven conditions all coming together. You it's, need it's... to, again, take that bigger history, look at where you might be able to intervene, look at the interventions. Well, you know, does does like amygdala or, you know, limbic system retraining work? Well, yeah, there's some good evidence for that. So how are we going to use that? And what would, which type of brain retraining may suit this person? Um, so you might bring that in and then you might, you know, then go, okay, so they, they've got a problem with their digestive system. How are we going to address that? Mm. What are the kind of tests that might show something? What's their validity? What kind of interventions could you use? Does this have, there's a, the NH and MRC took on something called the GRADE approach, which is grading recommend, recommendations, assessment, development and evaluation. Mm. And that means that it, that it does a few different things, but one of the things it does is it goes, well, if this intervention has a high level of risk, you have to have a, you should really have a very high level of evidence to use it, right? If this intervention has a very low level of risk, well, you may not need as high a level of evidence to use this, but you know, that's when the experience and the patient desire kicks that's in. That's a as fascinating well. way to look at it of just like balancing, you know, being proportional, particularly when you're dealing with things that haven't had a lot of. And it's, can I say one more thing though? It, it is wrong to say that there isn't, you know, published evidence. There's, there are a lot of, uh, even in the mainstream journals, we see things published on what we might have called complementary medicine. Um, before it's Norman's totally right the evidence changes all the time but there are things like you know you you see a study on vitamin E and it's like oh vitamin E doesn't do anything for let's say for plaque formation in vessels and stuff but then you know they may have used the wrong kind of vitamin E the wrong elements of the vitamin E it's very complicated to really sure. understand what these trials are showing and this is where I hugely those... differ with Penny is this is the standard response that you get because there's there's, there's virtually no evidence for any of the vitamins at all, maybe B12 and elderly people. It depends on what you're wanting to achieve. But when you look at the large randomized trials, and there's always a thing, oh, well, we used the wrong form of fish oil. It should have been you know, diff different balance of fish oil. It's always a different form of vitamin E. The reality is these are not – I mean, just don't, don't get me on about vitamins. This, this is where we do, do, do differ – is that we are not giving vitamin supplements as vitamins. We're giving them as drugs. When you take, when you swallow a pill with vitamins in it, you're taking it in drug-like quantities. And we've got no idea what the effect of that is. And biological compounds behave differently at different concentrations. So I, I studied this in literature in depth. I mean, I've been following it for years, but from my latest book, is that, for example, vitamin C at low levels um, is indeed an antioxidant, 
and even using the word antioxidant is misleading in this, these terms because th these substances are more than antioxidants. At high doses, it probably speeds up aging and is a pro-oxidant. So, so things behave at different, it's, it does your head in, but things behave at different ways at different, at, at different points. So to say you might be vitamin deficient and so on, you're, we're giving these things in drugs. And, and when you look at the large randomized trials, and actually, you know, scratch a neurologist, scratch cardiologist, if they thought something worked, they'd be taking it. You won't find a cardiologist or a neurologist who's swallowing vitamin E, because oh. if it worked, they would be. For a while, they were, and then when they saw the evidence, they stopped. That's, I mean, that's one side of it. And then there's yeah. a whole group, yeah. group of compounds yeah. that should work, and in fact, many of the vitam vitamins should work, but they don't. And there's another group, well, we'll come to back, back to that later, is there's just stuff that goes on with some of these compounds which we don't understand. The harm, there's probably not much harm, but to say there's going to be a lot of good, I think, is misleading. Well, that's probably where the, the, the proportionality um, might come in. Penny, just you personally, um, and to sort of this point of evidence, where do you draw the line between complementary treatments you believe have shown enough evidence to work, ones that may work, but you don't believe there's enough evidence to support them, and ones that you genuinely feel are, are sort of more in the hocus-pocus category. You know, and I'm thinking the full gamut here from, you know, acupuncture and kinesiology through vitamins and detoxing through to alkaline water, and I even came across this medical medium who believes he can converse directly with the spirit of compassion to heal people. How do you, you pass this whole world, which often is grouped together for many people, and we're all battling to know where to draw the line? Around 75% of people in Australia either use some form of complementary or integrative medicine, and many of them are undirected. So it's true, you know, people go into, into all the supermarkets and mm. health food shops and, and um, chemists, which sell huge numbers of supplements and just, just take anything. So I get people who come in, I make them bring them in. Sometimes mm. I've got two huge shopping bags full of them. Mm. And I go through them all and I, and I try and help them to see what may mm. be helpful, what won't be harmful and what they definitely shouldn't be on. Mm. And I say to most people, look, the best, the most important thing, and we all know this, is that you eat a good, healthy, fresh diet, right, mm. with a good balance. And, of course, it's a little bit different for everyone. Everyone has a different body type. Everyone utilises food a little bit differently. Everyone eats, you know, does better or worse eating breakfast or eating a big dinner. You know, you've got to individualise all of these things. So a, a good diet and low in probably the richer carbohydrates and sugars and regular exercise, looking after your emotional and spiritual well-being, mm. um, keeping good company, having balance in your, your work life, you know, staying away from screen. Like all the usual things, being out in nature, being out in nature. But when huge. you look to bring, when you decide who you bring into your integrative practice, you might have a, a, a naturopath who brings in kinesiology. You know, what the, what is the line for you as to whether something works well enough. I guess what I'm saying is people come in with their own stuff, which we have to help them with. So people sure. need guidance. No question sure. they need guidance. And if anything, sure. we'd be taking them off more things than putting them on usually. Yeah. Um, and secondly, practitioners um, that I would work with, first of all, I have to feel that they're, you know, see that they have the qualifications that they say mm. that they have. And then there are things that I just don't understand well enough to suggest that people use them. Right. So if someone comes in and they say, look, I see a massive therapist she's fantastic and she does this kinesiology with me and it's helped me understand this this and this and it seems like the patient's doing well with that well I'm not going to turn them off it if they say yeah. she did kinesiology and she told me that in my past life I was something or other and uh you know and what I really should be doing in my life is x well then I'd say look I, I'm, I'm not sure that's a good place for you to right. be right yeah. so it's really about discerning what's what works for the patient what's least what what's not harmful what's actually being what's actually helpful yeah yeah. Same with acupuncture. Same with same with many of the other therapies um, that people use. Can I, can I just bring in a concept which does bring things together? And Penny's referred to it on multiple occasions. Is what we forget, in fact, and sometimes we resist it, is that the brain runs everything. The brain runs everything. Now, when you go and see your doctor and you've got chronic pain, for example, and the doctor, like say Penny says, you know, you're looking a bit depressed and, and so on. A common reaction from people was, oh, 
ambassador saying that uh, it's all in my head. It's, I've invented these symptoms just by bringing in a psychological element to the conversation, and it's really resisted. But the brain runs everything, and the brain monitors your environment, it monitors your relationships, and, monitors, and there's only one thing the brain knows what to do, is transfer the message, translate those messages into physical messages to the rest of your body, hormones, immune system, cardiovascular system. And therefore, a truly integrative approach does start with exactly what Penny's talking about. How are you in your environment? Now, one of the problems I've got with integrative medicine is that it's, it's very middle class. It's very biased towards people with resources. Now, if you go into an Aboriginal community and uh, people go in, some, you know, people who are not used to dealing with Aboriginal communities go in and say, oh, if only you took your cholesterol pill, if only you stopped smoking, the life expectancy gap would be solved. And the conversation you get back from Aboriginal communities is about dispossession, ownership of land, stolen generation, acknowledge me, the voice. And you think, what the bloody hell are they on about? If only they took the cholesterol. But the reality is what you're getting back from the community is stuff that's about the environment. And intuitively, they know that unless they have what psychologists call a locus of control, which is within yourself and you're controlling your destiny, then the, the brain is on alert and that changes everything in your body. And, we, and you start from that position. And a lot of the things that influence that are social, political and economic and not solved by a naturopath. Or a doctor. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that was actually my follow-up question, Norman, to you, just about that lens of mainstream medicine, which is so focused on symptoms, diagnoses, giving you pills to op- or operating on you. And that, you know, you point this out in your in your wonderful new book, How to Live Younger Longer, that, that it's in a sense a bit of a strange place to put the majority of resources, that often conditions come about through, you know, decades of unhealthy living, there's the focus on preventative care. There's also that wider lens of environmental factors, as you talk about, and factors, social, um, ethnic factors, uh, you know, that that feed in the chemicals that we um, imbibe and the pollutants. How do you think about where the resources should go in, in healthcare and, and whether the lens in mainstream medicine can actually, I guess, limit the health of, of, of citizens, really? So I, I don't think it's about taking resources in one area and putting it into another. The Harvard School of Public Health Researcher talked many years ago about the medical commons. And it's the idea that, you, you know, the old idea in a medieval village that you've got the commons and you can put your sheep on it and you all feed on it and, and so on. And the, the idea of the medical commons and on the medical commons are cures, curative medicine, preventive medicine. But there's also politics and economics as well. And so how, how – uh, so we, we spend inordinately – on curative medicine and we build more and more hospitals when there's a significant percentage of people who are in hospital who don't need to be who could have avoided it um, if they were put on a different trajectory and if you look at what we care about so there's two things we care about as a community one is life expectancy how long do we live as an average of the community and the other is individual lifespan some of the things they do in hospitals affect your lifespan so they find a a critical blocked artery in your heart and they relieve it, that will allow you to live a normal, long life. If they find a cancer early enough and treat you, you you, know, you can be cured of cancer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so individual lifespan, but it has very little impact. All this money we spend on hospitals has almost no impact on life expectancy, the average life expectancy of the community. That's the most important politicians for our health, or not health ministers, most health ministers are Ill- they'd like to be health ministers, but they're illness ministers, they're health finance ministers, they're hospital ministers. It's the treasurer, it's the finance minister, it's the education minister. How long you go on in education determines how long you live, whether, the age at which you should get dementia, if you get dementia at all, the age at which you get coronary heart disease and cancer. Not health education, but education. These are fundamental things in our environment where we don't understand, where politicians do not seem to understand the broader implications of their policies for how well we live and how long we live. Yeah, so that's really pulling the lens right back into being better educated, having more resources correlates much more strongly with healthy, long, longer lives, uh, and which is a great way to 
put out the frame. In 19, I was involved in a study with the World Health Organization in the World Bank in 1993, um, a long time ago. But it was trying to, and they tried to look at what determines how long you live as a community. Is it how much you spend on healthcare? No. There's no correlate. Once you get beyond a certain level of healthcare expenditure, there's no relationship pretty much between how much you spend on healthcare and life expectancy. Is it per capita income? Well, yes, at a very low level, but once you get beyond a certain level of per capita income, there is no relationship. The, the, the strongest relationship between how long a country lives on average is the gap between rich and poor in a country. The wider the gap, the shorter you live, which is one reason why America, the United States of America is down about number 34. Mm. And fairer countries like Japan, Sweden, Australia are up in the top six. Penny, as no doubt you know better than anyone, people in chronic pain or even just with, you know, with a disease that's degenerative can be desperate to find a cure to alleviate symptoms even just a little bit. And Sometimes mainstream medicine doesn't have an easy fix. I know personally, I've always got at least two hard to fix ailments at any given time that give me distress. And I do find I have a pull to more and more adventurous treatments because they can offer a, a glimmer of hope. And there's always anecdotal evidence that you can find online that things work. Do you worry that the broader, I'm not talking about your practice here, but the broader complementary medical industry and the wellness industry in general can end up unwittingly preying on desperate people who, who do want to believe and taking money from people who, who have little or nothing to spare, even if the intentions of the practitioners themselves are, are generally pure. Uh, I definitely worry about that. I worry about yeah. it also in conventional medicine. I, I worry that people mm-hmm. go and to places where they're not being heard and when they're where they're being treated in a way that they, that doesn't suit them or doesn't correspond to them. Mm-hmm. I do worry about it in the complementary medicine industry, and it, it goes the wellness industry goes into the beauty industry, goes into all of the stuff that's going on at the moment um, that people think they absolutely need to be okay and that they don't. What, the other thing that I worry about is this trajectory that um, Norman's talking about because we're, the, the, we've got an increase in chronic disease and it's not just in our older people, in our children as well. You know, the mm. amount of anxiety and depression, mental illness we have in our kids and many other things is just huge. And so we, we do need a different way of approaching what's going on. We do end up seeing people who, who have tried everything. I see many, many, many young women in their 20s who are so tired they can barely move. Now, some, someone needs to unpack that. Someone needs to take the time to unpack what's happened to them and how they got there and how we can turn it around for them because you almost certainly, almost certainly can. Penny, I wanted to ask you about the sort of structural system of doctors. Like, you know, in the good old days, there was a sense that people had a family GP who knew them, maybe knew their extended family could provide a sort of pastoral care with, with you know, folksy advice on years of seeing lots of different patients, e- even if the medical toolbox itself was a bit limited. I have a regular GP, I'm lucky, but I know that it's less and less common and got some friends who just go to medical centres, see whatever doctor happens to be available at the time. I mean, do, do you think your vision of the medical profession is truly integrative with doctors who do have this, this 360 knowledge and training uh, and understanding of a patient's whole being that can bring together nutritionists and non-Western practices as well as, you know, get the gastroenterologist and the surgeon. Is this a vision that is achievable or, or really it's really only for a few select doctors who've taken the time to really broadly understand the human body and mind and who have that intimate practice where they do get to know patients in that really deep way? Well, I think that we're not saving any money by having uh, short consultations with people and fixing single problems. Right. I know a lot of doctors say, look, I just don't have time to spend time with people. And I would say that if you spend time with people and, and really develop that relationship, because 50 to 60% of therapeutic outcomes come from the relationship alone. Uh, it's really important to know that, right? So that relationship, that folksy advice or what, whatever you want to call that yeah. is actually really important yeah. because they're much more likely to follow advice and work with you if they have that relationship with you. I would say that developing that relationship is not a waste of time. In fact, developing that relationship, spending more time with people initially and when they need it will mean that you see them far less often and they'll be far less of a burden to the system and they'll probably end up taking perhaps less medications long term. 
um, mm. and having a more holistic approach. And also you're educating them on, on well, helping to educate them on changing their lifestyles so that actually they can change their trajectory. If the government paid for a health coach, a, a properly trained health coach for every person with a chronic disease and spent with them as much time as they needed, and even if that cost twenty dollars to $50,000 per person, I'm not saying they would do this, they would be, and it changed the tra- tra- trajectory like they no longer had diabetes, then it would save the health system literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars mm. per person. And so it's moving money and focus from the end through to holding the patient's hand and broadening the lens. Helping people to change a trajectory that eventually makes them independent. It's not about a diet. It's about what's a sustainable way for you to eat that feels good, that you like, that you understand. And actually, if you fall over, that's also okay. You've got somewhere to come back to. You've got someone to help you get back on track. Do you think uh, things should move to AI more? Is that a way to make things more efficient or you just end up pushing the problems? It's the relationship that makes the difference. People need that relationship. The AI can be used for some things and there's some evidence, for example, that veterans do better with an AI psychologist on the computer sometimes. But that may just be because the trauma is so significant that they just find it hard to be with someone. I mean, there, you know, there are different things for different people at different times in their life, but but we actually need each other. Yeah, and hopefully med- medicine can move more towards relationship and leaving maybe some of the diagnosis to, to, to AI as it's moving in some of the fields like radiology. Not... Norman, I wanted to ask you about the pharmaceutical company and industries. How, how affected, even skewed, do you think mainstream medicine is by the pharmaceutical companies? And as businesses, the pharmaceutical industry would naturally focus on finding cures for diseases that can create big paydays for their shareholders. And this overlaps, but I imagine isn't nearly perfectly aligned with the medical profession's aim, and again, may not be perfectly aligned with the, with the needs of citizens. But at the same time, you know, obviously, without the financial incentives of the pharmaceutical industry, so many of the great life-saving medicines wouldn't have been created. How, how should we think about the pharmaceutical industry and its benefits and limitations? No different from any other part of medicine. But there, but commercial um, pressures do distort the evidence. So we do, you know, we all want the effective drug when we need it. And we all want the curative cancer drug if it exists. But um, there are distortions within the system. Um, so pharmaceutical industry sponsors opinion leaders to influence GPs prescribing and other people's prescribing. They um, can adversely influence the outcome of a randomized trial, which is why we slowly move towards better and better ways of regulating randomized controlled trials so the influence of the pharmaceutical industry is not there. We don't publish negative trials where they didn't find a result. We tend to, there's a positive bias in the, in the literature uh, of mm. positive results rather than something that doesn't work. So there are lots of distortions in there. The biggest distortion is price, particularly with cancer drugs and drugs against um, autoimmune disease. So we, we, um, these new drugs that come out for cancer are enormously expensive, enormously expensive, cripplingly expensive. And for many of them, they don't need to be. Don't they need to be expensive enough to create the incentive for the pharmaceutical company to to take the big risk on, on developing and research? I think you do need a capitalist system to develop new pharmaceuticals with the right incentives. But they're making super profits now. And... Um, and you know there there have been some cancer centres that have just stopped using some drugs because they're so expensive. So we fund medical research out of out of taxation, and yet when they come back um, to uh, commercialise, we're paying hundreds of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for these medications, and it's hard to justify. There was a, a hepatitis C drug that cost eighty dollars to produce, and was being we were being charged tens of thousands of dollars for for it. Um, and they exaggerate how much research and development actually costs. So, yes, you do need a profit, but there is a problem. And the way they're charging for vaccines now is they charge that for vaccines 50 years ago. We would not have had a widely available polio vaccine or whooping cough vaccine because they would have charged us um, too much money to actually have universal vaccination. So there are huge problems with the pharmaceutical industry. But in the end, for example, they're getting us out of COVID. Um, they, they, you know, vaccine technology is amazing. Penny, mainstream medicine, as I understand it, seems to work with a very materialist framework. It sees humans as bodies that can malfunction, which can be fixed 
even the mind under psychiatry is a brain with with neurons that can malfunction and be, be tinkered with and hopefully fixed. And I sometimes think that what's attractive about some of the complementary medical therapies is that they welcome our psychology and emotions, as we've been talking about on, on, on the podcast, even, even our psyche and our spirit, that where traditional medicine discards the placebo effect, some, some alternative therapies welcome the placebo into the room, in a sense, recognizing our state of mind as part of our journey to well-being. How do you think about the patient's state of mind? When is it relevant? But also when, when I guess, is it a distraction? How, how far should one burrow into a patient's history of trauma, for example? And, and even more wildly, how would you think about the belief in being possessed by spirits or even voodoo in some cultures where people's health is really affected, but it sits right at the juncture between our material health and, and our psyche? I think our um, spiritual self is is very important. And I've had doctors recently come and say, well, how are we integrating that into what we do? And I think it's got a lot to do with presence. It's how you bring yourself to the consultation. It's how present you are with the person that you're listening to. Because if you're in a deep state of listening to that person, which means you're not in any judgment and you're in, in a state of we, can, we could call it love, uh, mm. that, that often people find within themselves things that they didn't even know were there which you need to, you, you actually do when you talk about trauma, need to be very careful with. So that deep state of listening, people can find all kinds of things and can actually come up with their own answers if you're really listening carefully and, uh, and keeping that loving space for them. And so sometimes what happens is you're in a consultation and it's all about stress and, and suddenly it just goes boom and just drops into something totally different. Mm. And then sometimes people go, well, actually I do know why this is happening to me. And, and then they'll, they'll start to talk about that. So I think that you, you access that part of people by being deeply present for them and deeply respectful. Um, and, and as Norman and I have both said, that, that that actually does take time, but sometimes it can happen extraordinarily quickly. Sometimes it's just that people can see that you really want to understand their story, like you really want to understand their whole story and, and just really put it together, like it's really exciting for them rather than being taken, at, you know, you're, you've got your reflux there and your cardiovascular disease here and your anxiety there. It's just something that, that helps people to feel that you're there for them. Mm. Now, in terms of, okay, people could say that they're possessed, and I guess that's a, you know, sometimes that's a cultural thing and we have mm. to understand cultural diversity. So it might just be another way of, of saying that there's trauma there, mm. you know. I guess it's not actually necessarily for us to interpret. It's for us to witness mm. and for us to, to respect and to listen to and to help that person find a way that's going to be useful for them. No, that's great. And what I love hearing from both of you, in a sense, is to take the focus away from that one 15-minute session where you are trying to um, assess, cure and fix someone and move the frame to a much broader sense of the healing journey and to look at the environment, to look at the socioeconomic conditions, to look at society as a whole and to hopefully restructure our system so that it's better for the patients as well as hopefully being cheaper for society. It seems like there might be some, some easier wins that still sit within rigorous evidence-based medical practice. Join us next week for Principle of Charity on the Couch where Lloyd has an unfiltered conversation with the guests. But my pushback to you here is, what happens if I never get the doctor who cares? I just think you've got crap cancer care. That is not acceptable, what you've just described. But I'm alive. I've got brilliant medical care. I'm alive. I mean, I've I, I got the no, best... No, you didn't. I don't, I, don't, I don't think you did. That and much more next week. See you then. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 